My name is Vicky. I am a romance author, and I write under the name Vicky Essex. I am Chinese-Canadian, born and bred in Toronto. So when I was 21, I had been dating my then-boyfriend, now-husband, John, for several months. And I was still living at home because I was attending university and trying to save money. So I was living at home with my parents in Toronto. And one night, I came home quite late. It was probably close to midnight at that point. Again, 21 years old. I come to the house, and I just drop my keys in the bowl or whatever, and my mother comes storming out of her bedroom. She starts to tear a strip out of me. She says, where have you been? So most of us have been caught in a situation like this, either coming home late at night to be busted by our parents or having to do the walk of shame in front of roommates. But this was actually pretty unusual behavior for Vicky, who was, at the time, a third-year journalism school major, a successful and diligent student and daughter, in part thanks to the consistent pressure her parents had applied in classical immigrant fashion, and most importantly, someone who had never dated before, much less had a boyfriend. This is Sample Space by Here Media. I'm Diana Wong, and welcome to the second part of our three-part series on periods, pussies, power. Asian American woman and our sexuality. This episode is part two, touched for the very first time. Stories of our first sexual encounters, good and bad, embarrassing and fearful, alone and together. In this second episode, we explore what it means to be touched for the very first time and what power Asian American women can draw from embracing our sexuality. And power, or at least some courage, is certainly what Vicky needed having been caught by her tiger mom, no less, coming home late from a date with her first boyfriend. My mother comes storming out of her bedroom, and she starts to tear a strip out of me, she says. Where have you been? It's so late. What are you doing? Why are you know, making us worry all this time? And I was 21, and I was at school and holding down a part-time job. And I said very sternly to my mother, Mom, I have a cell phone. If you have any concerns, you just give me a call. If you're worried about me, call me. And it's like, don't yell at me. I am doing the best I can. I am going to school. I am holding a part-time job down. I work really hard and I obey all the rules. I'm doing the best I can. And my mother looked at me very sharply. And then she said, your shirt's inside out. And then she turned around, walked back into her bedroom and closed the door. And we never spoke of it again. Before we jump into this exciting episode, we want to give our listeners some free stuff. I could talk about our giveaway sponsor, Lunapads, and the lady founders of this great social enterprise. I could also talk about their reusable cotton pads we're giving away in two huge gift baskets. But instead, here's my girlfriend, Caitlin, because she called me years ago and wouldn't stop raving about the Diva Cup, which we are including in these $100 gift baskets. It's made my periods completely different because it used to be like me, paranoid, all the time about leaking and showing and remembering to bring tampons, backup pad, like I do have a very heavy flow. So it's amazing to be able to sleep through the night and not worry about leaking and be away from a bathroom for more than an hour and not worry about having to change your tampon. Can you sing the Diva Cup song? Oh, wait, I didn't know there was a Diva Cup song. Yeah, you have to make it up right now. Oh, okay. Uh, Try not to use any trademarked (laughs) 
or licensed <laughs> theme songs. <laughs> Happy birthday is still under license, I believe. Oh, okay. All right. Um, so you gotta fill it up. Thank God you've got your diva cup. <laughs> really am sorry, Caitlin, mainly because you have to be friends with me. If you want to be free and happy like Caitlin without having to be friends with me, all you have to do is like our page on Facebook and reshare the post about this series to enter the giveaway and win your own Diva Cup. And because you are such a generous group of people who have let us know how much you enjoy this podcast over the last few months, Sample Space listeners can use the code NEWMEDIA for 15% off all of your purchases at lunapads.com. This is the second part of our three-part series on Asian American women and our sexuality. If you haven't heard the first part, I really encourage you to go back and listen to it. In part one, we heard stories about becoming a woman, stories about periods and spills and how becoming a woman is ultimately about finding love for yourself. We also talked about what makes the Asian American female experience unique when it comes to how we, and others, talk and think about our sexuality, including the internal cultural and familial stigma around sexuality, paired with the hypersexualization of Asian women in American society, both of which hamper our autonomy to explore and define our sexuality and dehumanize us into dolls to fulfill sexual fantasies inherited from historic colonial and imperial ventures. But the question of this three-part series remains unanswered. As Asian American women, what do we stand to gain by embracing our sexuality? As we heard in part one, self-love is part of the answer, but that's not all there is to be gained. In this episode, we hear stories about our first times. First times are tough. They are sticky and awkward and guilt-ridden. For Asian American women, first sexual encounters are particularly confusing because they combine a natural human curiosity of our bodies and our sexuality with those familial and cultural forces concerned with our purity, our virginity, and our exotic mystery. But in all that we purportedly lose or lack in these first sexual experiences, we may get back in answers to our question. What is there to be gained by embracing our sexuality? So here it is in all its glory. Stories from our first times, beginning with Act 1, The Aquarium. In high school, I had a teacher. She was married, and I don't even remember what the class was, but she talked about sex. She said, girls... When you have sex, it is going to be a really, really heavenly experience. I mean, this, okay, and here I am sitting, I'm what, 13, 14 years old. And all I can think of is, Is she for real? I mean, this is a Catholic school. Is she ta- Why is she talking about this? That's Lynette Ferrer. And Lynette grew up in the Philippines, where she attended a prestigious all-girls Catholic school, and where her sexual education was primarily composed of abstinence, and this ninth grade teacher talking about a really, really heavenly experience. And that's all she really knew about sex, until she met Alice. Alice had recently graduated from Lynette's high school 
So she was no longer in that school. So she had another friend who was quite, I mean, she was very butch, her friend. And they were good friends. So they would come visit my school. And her friend, I guess, had a girlfriend in my school. So Alice would just be hanging out. And that's how we got introduced. Lynette was 16 and just finishing 11th grade when she met Alice. Summer was just starting, and Lynette was attending a kind of college prep challenge program at a local college. They had some kind of program where there were students from all over the country where you took classes and participated in all kinds of activities with these students who were between their junior and senior year. Well, that school just happened to be near the university that Alice was going to. So after my classes, which usually lasted just during the day and some early afternoon, I would either swing by her school or she would catch me. Then she would take me home. And Lynette and Alice did what most teenagers would do to pass the summer. Alice and I were in the bedroom. It was just me and her. And my family had gone somewhere. And we were fooling around. I don't think that we ever really undressed. I mean, sex happened without undressing, okay? But I remember this story because all of a sudden I'm hearing, okay, sounds like there are people now. I can hear sounds. They're home. So we have to stop whatever we're doing. We did. But... We had a fish aquarium, and it was overflowing. I don't know if we were cleaning it or whatever, but I remember really well that my brothers came home, and it's like, Lynette, what have you been doing? The fish aquarium is overflowing. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I know what I was doing. But as good as being with Alice felt, Lynette was ravaged by guilt. There were a lot of guilt feelings for me. It wasn't simple. I mean, I, I struggled through that. I enjoyed it. I liked it. But the Catholic part of me said, no, this is wrong. And yet it felt normal. It felt natural. I remember going to confession, talking to a priest, and priest tells me, well, if you're really serious about this, tell me your name. And at that point, I'm like, this doesn't sound right. I didn't give him my name, and it was years before I went back to confession. I'm like, okay, I'm burning in hell. I just accepted that. Lynette's guilt and her conflicting feelings about her sexuality, her attraction to Alice, her exploration, is representative of the Asian American woman's first sexual experience, in that it is intricate and complex and wrapped up in family, culture, religion, love, pleasure, and guilt. In our next act, we add another degree of complexity to this first sexual experience. 
act two, not anybody's portrayal. I think we all have a certain idea in our minds of what it feels like to be blind. It probably starts with feeling overwhelmed, followed by an anger and resentment, then a panic about feeling useless. And I think above all, the world would seem like a much scarier place. But Melissa Hadianto, a second-generation Indonesian-American who is legally blind, refuses to be defined by that portrayal, or anyone else's for that matter. How do you feel about your disability, about being blind? It's basically just something that's a part of my life, and I am just living my life like as me and as nobody else, and not as anybody's portrayal of me. I'm just being myself here in the present. My mom, when I grew up, made it sound to be a scary place. Like She made it sound like people are just out there to get you. But once I started going out on my own, I don't think that the world is scary. Melissa Hadianto was born premature and has always been legally blind. She uses a white cane, which gets lost under my couch sometime between us talking about how bad movies were this summer and me assuring her that her not being allowed to overnight camp was because she's Asian and not because she's visually impaired. And in fact, Melissa can see enough to text on her phone and attend college with her sighted classmates. I always knew I was visually impaired. I always knew I had to see things up close ever since I was young and had to have the print bigger. And because like, I had those services available to me like throughout my entire grade schooling, it wasn't that big of a deal. Because all the people and places I've been to People that I've met, people that are my friends, people that I'm close with, people that are like my mentors and places I've been to and places I lived, I would have never been able to experience any of those things if I wasn't visually impaired. I don't see it as a weakness because it's basically made me who I am. Growing up, the only thing Melissa really struggled with was how shy she was, which made it really hard to ask for help, even when she needed it. In school, Melissa's orientation mobility teacher recognized this and would insist on taking her to stores and banks just to practice asking for help. There was like, I think, one year or two years where my teacher literally focused on me just asking for public assistance, like at the store of like saying, oh, hi, could you tell me where this and this is? Or can you tell me how much this is? Because she knew that I was like really shy. And so we actually spent a good amount of time focusing on that, like where each lesson was literally just us going to some business like a post office or a bank or like a supermarket and me having to ask for what it was I needed. And did all that practice pay off? When you're visually impaired, you have to really just more self-advocate for yourself even when you're young. Sometimes you actually have to remind the teacher, hey, I actually need this to be bigger for me to see it? Or can you read what's on the board again? Or like, can you read what's on the board and not just write it on the board? And I was very shy and I'm still very shy. But yeah, like I think over the years, I definitely have become a better advocate than when I was really young. Over time, Melissa has learned to ask for what she wants and needs while giving little thought to the stereotypes sighted people have about folks with visual impairments. But then Melissa met Joe. Then, like, we started making out, and then that's when, like, clothes came off. And 
I was like, whoa. It's like, I can't believe this is happening. Like, it was, like, exciting. That's when we kind of, like, foreplayed a little bit. And I could see if he was reaching into, like, his pockets for something. And then he's like, oh, shit, I don't have a condom. I wasn't expecting that. Were you scared? Yeah, I was pretty, pretty scared. And that was like our third date. So he had to leave and go home. And so he left. And after that, I called one of my friends on the phone. And I told them I was really, really scared. And I was crying as I'm talking to my friend. And he he was saying, yeah, how that guy is someone he shouldn't be talking to. What Melissa's friends meant was that Joe was a big departure from their circle. He was a six-foot-tall, long-haired, guitar-playing 19-year-old who wasn't academic the way they were. Joe was a smoker, a drinker, and someone who would sneak into bars with a fake ID. So yeah, Melissa had found herself a bad boy. Melissa and Joe had met at their local independent living training center, where Melissa had learned to live on her own before moving out, and where Joe was finishing the same courses. Joe was completely blind, having lost his vision in a traffic accident two years earlier, when he was 17. He was also way more sexually experienced than 21-year-old Melissa, who hadn't moved past second base with anyone before meeting Joe. I feel like I wanted to have sex because I was curious about it, and I think that I did want it, but the way that he was telling me, like, what to do and, like, how he wanted things to go made it really not a comfortable experience. Yeah, that was very, very scary for me. And there was one time he was at my apartment and he he was just very high and very drunk and he was a smoker and he got very like, we need to find a cigarette right now, like at 12 a.m. So then the closest is like 7-Eleven and he told me, oh, let's take an Uber there. And he threatened me and told me that if you don't get an Uber so that we can go to 7-Eleven, you're going to have to give me a blowjob, is what he said. And he was starting to fall asleep, so I took that to my advantage and I told him that, yeah, I'm requesting it. But then later I fell asleep, too. And I was hoping he would just stay asleep. (laughs) But then he randomly woke me up, and he told me, you know, when's it coming? And I said, never got it. And then later on, he starts to take his pants off, and he just aims his penis, like, right at my mouth. And he's, like, telling me what to do, and I just kept telling him no and no, and I cried a lot. After this, Melissa broke up with Joe, but 
still calling me and telling me things like, you know, I want to be the first person to have anal with you. Because I guess he read something online that said, like, Asians really like anal sex. It's been a couple of years since she's seen Joe. And Melissa's had some time to think about what happened. And to see that she had given in to a social narrative. A trope. Not about her disability, but her sexuality. Like many women, Melissa had been socialized to believe that her role as a woman was to please her partner and make him feel good. Why? Why was it? about him I was I think that it wasn't exactly what I wanted to do but I just did it for him to make him happy so he would either stop asking or stop bothering about it so since then Melissa has had to relearn how to ask for what she needs and what she wants in this new realm of sexuality but in discovering a sexual identity for herself she is again doing it on her own terms and disavowing any one person or society's portrayal of what her sexuality should look like. And after figuring all that out and thinking about all that, that's when I realized that I am worth it enough to really just explore. And if it didn't happen, I don't think I would have tried to explore my sexuality in terms of just learning about different orientations and also learning that there are people who like BDSM and there are people who are asexual and that everybody is different. I think it's just awesome that I'm giving myself the time and the space to just explore, you know, just to find what I really want and I think that's important because I didn't always give myself the time to do that. And so I wanted to know, after all that, if Melissa felt powerful. Do you feel powerful? Yeah, I feel pretty powerful right now. How so? I feel like my voice, specifically being someone who is Asian American, but also has a physical disability and also being queer at the same time, is just... Usually people with disabilities get really put on the back burner of the stove, at the very edge of the back burner of the stove. And a lot of the times their voices aren't heard, and I really just want my voice to be heard. You're like a triple threat minority. I know, it is. I'm like, whoa. That was Melissa Harianto talking about her first sexual encounter. To me, this story is about Melissa learning to embrace her sexuality and giving herself permission to explore and define her sexual identity. Melissa emerges feeling powerful because she is now creating her own story, not just following the narrative that society has about Asian American women and their role in sexuality. And that narrative certainly doesn't include female masturbation, as Priyanka Wally learned at an early age. In the first part of this three-part series, we heard from Priyanka about her experiences as a med school student. But way before she became a doctor, way before she started doing stand-up comedy, she was a little kid with a little kid crush and a little kid diary. Act three, Afraid of Myself. (laughs) 
wrote in my diary, I really like so-and-so. I think he is very cute. I want to have sex with so-and-so. And I was super young. I don't think I even understood what sex was, but I just kind of talking to friends was like, oh, this is something you do with someone you like. And I remember my mom found the diary and um, then she came up to me and she's like, um, Priyanka, um, don't write this stuff. Don't ever write this. Um, and I felt really ashamed because I knew at that time, like, oh, sex is something special, but I didn't understand anything about it. And then I felt really embarrassed that she caught me and then she scolded me. Like I did something wrong by writing that. So at the time I was just like, okay, okay. But inside I got super embarrassed. And that was pretty reflective of how Priyanka was raised. Her parents made sure Priyanka understood that wanting to be sexual, wanting sex or pleasure was shameful. And like most Asian Americans, Priyanka's family didn't talk about sexuality. And when they did, it was mainly to instill fear and indirectly communicate that the value of a woman was in her body and the preservation of its purity. There was this total fear of if you spend the night at a friend's house, basically, you're going to get raped. You know what I mean? It's like there were so many times I wanted to stay over at friends' houses, but they were like, oh, no, do they have a dad? Then you're going to get raped. Like, no way. Like, do they have a brother? therefore you're going to get raped. You know, it was just like, whoa. And I, at one point I was like, dad, it's like an all girls event. It's like, do they have a neighbor who's a male? You're going to get raped. But sex and sexuality are inherent parts of humanity, no matter how we may deny it or instruct children to ignore it. And so Priyanka explored her five-year-old body for herself, even if she didn't know exactly what she was discovering. I used to really like climbing poles. And basically I noticed that as I would go up it, my clit would rub against the pole and it felt really good. So finally I was like, why am I climbing these poles? Like, let me just rub my clit against this thing because that's what's really more awesome. So I remember I would basically masturbate against these poles and I discovered it super young. I was five, I remember. And I was like, holy shit, this feels amazing. And then I quickly discovered that you can do the same thing against a door. You can basically grab the doorknobs on both sides and then lift your body up and basically masturbate like that. So my first masturbation periods were against like furniture and shit. That's what I would do. And all I knew was that I was like, this feels amazing. I didn't realize I was masturbating at the time. All I knew was that this was awesome. Priyanka had no real understanding of what this pole rubbing, door humping good feeling was. But she kept it up because it felt really, really good. Sometime between seven, eight, nine, I would lie in bed and I would be like, oh, I can't go to sleep, but I really want my door thing because then I'll be able to sleep after. So I would wake up in the middle of the night and then just rub one out and then go back to sleep and be able to sleep. So it wasn't until Priyanka started college that she found language to describe what she had been doing for years. I remember I was a freshman year in college and this girl in the dorm was like, oh yeah, I love masturbating. And I was like, well, what do you mean? Like, how do you know that? 
And she's like, what are you talking about? What do you mean? Why are you even asking me this question? Like, do you not masturbate? Then she sort of explained to me what it was. She was like, you take a shower head, you put it on the jet mode, and then you stick it down there and until it feels good, and then you come. That's when I was like, oh, shit, I've been doing that for years. I actually started out with doors and poles, but then I figured out how to put my shower head on jet mode, and I would masturbate that way. I was like, I don't know. This feels fucking good. I did that throughout high school. I used the jet mode of the showerhead to masturbate a lot. And for the record, I excelled in high school. I like graduated at the top of my class, got a full ride to college. I am convinced that the masturbation was really important to my academic excellence. And so flash forward to college, this girl in the dorm is like, yeah, you just take a showerhead, you put it up there and it feels good. And then eventually you'll come. And then when she explained that to me, I was like, I go way back. Did you feel vindicated? No, not at that time yet, because I was in denial about how sexual I was because of the shame. It was like, oh, if I admit that I actually am sexual like this, then it's going to lead to a lot of problems. Because once you accept something about yourself, you can't ignore it anymore, right? So I was like, if I accept that I'm sexual, then I'm going to need to have sex or do sexual things in order to be okay. Priyanka was basically afraid of her own sexuality. What did you, at the time, think you were going to devolve into if you started to explore your sexuality? At the time, I thought I would be a slut. I could kind of hear my father's voice in my head being like, you're a prostitute, you're a slut, you're shameful. Like, I was just like, I cannot open the side of me. Otherwise, it's going to be really bad. It's going to be super bad. And the shame Priyanka carried and fear of her own sexuality very much fits into the virgin whore dichotomy we have heaped onto us as women. Either we are pure and good virgins with no sexual desires or harlots, prostitutes and whores who must feast on flesh. So for years, Priyanka didn't dare have sex, didn't dare share with anyone her curiosities, her desires, for fear of spiraling out of control into the sex-crazed whore that her parents had taught her to fear and shame. But then she fell in love with her college boyfriend. It was his first time too, so it was both our first time. We literally didn't know what we were doing. Were you both biology majors? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so obviously. I was, I was, I was scared. I was definitely scared. We had been together for several months, but I still didn't feel comfortable having sex with him because I just was thinking at the time we should probably be more committed to each other, which again, that is the shroud of the indoctrination of your culture telling you that sex before marriage is really not right. So still, Priyanka was unsure and scared of this idea of premarital sex because she had been socialized to believe that her virginity must remain intact, that her value as a woman was somehow connected to her hymen, despite the fact that she was a super smart, well-rounded, full scholarship pre-med student. Not that any of that helped make this first time any less confounding. It was actually really funny because the first time we tried he basically lost his erection, like, immediately, right? Like, he put on the condom, and then we tried 
for a few thrusts and then he lost his direction. And then we were both like, okay, let's like take a break. And let's be clear. Priyanka is describing basically everyone's first experience. Awkward, sticky, full of false starts. And if you're lucky, some queefing and definitely some farting. So I think for us, it wasn't the first time like was just wham, bam, done. I think it was actually like a progression because we didn't know what we were doing. So we just sort of took it as it came and no pun intended. It was a total wah, wah, wah. We were both pretty scared. And I think someone farted at one point and we were like, what's that smell? And then he lost his erection. (laughs) So funny. How did you feel afterwards? I did feel like, okay, because now I've had sex with this person, I need to marry them. I want to be partnered with them forever. But I do think me sort of extrapolating it to like, oh my God, I lost my virginity to this person. I love them. Therefore, we should get married now. I think that was my cultural upbringing coming in because sex is so shameful in Indian culture. And if you're going to have sex with someone, like you're going to marry them. Priyanka really did believe that she would marry her boyfriend. And that's how she justified having sex with him at the time. But alas, they parted ways. And since this first experience, Priyanka has had other partners. And with each, she has learned more and more about what she likes, what she wants, and what she needs. Do you ever still feel shame around your sexual identity? I tell myself it's really okay to be sexual. It's really okay to love yourself. It's really okay to ask for love in the form of sexuality. Like, you have to understand yourself sexually in order to build your identity. Today, we have heard stories about women who have faced some non-ideal circumstances in unpacking and discovering their sexual identities. Lynette talked about finding pleasure, though it was tied to guilt. Melissa learned that her sexual identity is worth exploring, though it took a terrible first boyfriend for her to realize it. Priyanka talked about masturbating for nearly two decades before she had a name for it, and understanding herself better, having accepted her identity as a sexual being despite the deep cultural stigma and caricature of a whore that she inherited. But did this answer our question? What do we, as Asian American women, stand to gain from embracing our sexuality? I think the stories of this episode have shown us what we continue to lose when we fail to embrace our sexuality. We lose the potential for pleasure and fulfillment that those around us, including our partners, have a de facto expectation of. We lose an autonomy over our bodies that others then use to dehumanize and objectify us. We lose a confidence in our expectations for what we are given and what we are allowed to take. We lose a freedom to live outside the confines of the proper woman. We lose a narrative that depicts Asian American women as humans deserving of that pleasure, autonomy, confidence, and freedom. But if this episode was about loss, The third and final part of the series is about gain. Here's a clip from part three, Mind to Own, wherein we talk about what taking ownership of our bodies and our sexuality looks like for Asian American women. 
And I was like, oh, so what do you do? And she was like, I'm a dominatrix. I was like, oh, what, what, what do you mean? <laughs> and she explained a little, but she was like, you know, I think you would be a really good dominatrix. That was an excerpt of the next episode of Sample Space, wherein we look at owning our bodies as Asian American women and what that means when it comes to control and pleasure, happily ever afters, and the sexuality of motherhood. All three parts of the series are out now, so subscribe on iTunes or your podcast app of choice to listen to part three, Mind to Own. And while you're subscribing, make sure to enter our giveaway for one of two jam-packed kits filled with reusable cotton pads and the life-changing Diva Cup from our friends at Luna Pads. You can put the Diva Cup in for 12 hours and, as they say, set it and forget it. Each kit is worth more than $100, and all you have to do is like Sample Space on Facebook and reshare our post about the series to your friends. And for Sample Space listeners only, you can use the code NEWMEDIA for 15% off all of your purchases at lunapads.com. What do, you, what do you mean I can't use, set it, and forget it? Oh, is that trademarked? Sorry. Special thank yous and deep admiration go to Johnson Fung, Lynette Ferrer, Melissa Harianto, Vicky So, who writes romance at vickyessex.com, and Priyanka Wally, whom you can find at priyankawallycomedy.com for a list of her stand-up shows across San Francisco. Music credit goes to Kevin McLeod of Incompetech, Madonna, and Inner Circle. This is Sample Space by Hero Media. I'm Diana Wong, and if you have any comments about this episode or stories you want to share, Tweet to us at samplespacepod or email to info at hearmedia.com. Finally, remember to share this with your Asian American lady friends, partners, sisters, cousins, nieces. Hey.